Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Professor Trelawney's Prediction. Today we will be discussing the start of the book's climax, what's really going on with Trelawney, and the sense of doom that ends the chapter. So in the timeline of the book, we've now passed into June, and the author describes the weather as being very warm, but all the students have to stay inside and study for their final exams. Hermione's schedule is, of course, even busier than most, and she still refuses to explain to Harry and Ron how she can take two finals at the same time when they see her schedule and see two finals at 9 a.m. They're also all stressed out because Buckbeak's Appeal is coming up this week, so they're worried about that. And they're also trying to worry about their exams at the same time. One day they're leaving the Great Hall to go to one of their exams and they run into Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, um, who mentions that he is there to have the appeal and likely to be there for the execution. Their last exam is divination and they each go one by one. Um, Trelawney tells each person not to tell anybody else what she predicted or bad things would happen to them. Neville is the only one to actually tell them this, which is very humorous. When Harry finally goes in for his turn, he's the last one. Um, he makes up some things that he sees in the crystal ball. He's clearly not doing very well. And then as he's getting up to leave, Professor Trelawney's voice changes, and she makes what appears to be a prediction that the Dark Lord will rise again. Before Harry can tell the others what he's just heard, they find out that Hagrid lost the appeal and that Buckbeak will be executed at sunset. They decide to go down and be with Hagrid while it happens. Harry has still left the invisibility cloak in the passageway to Hogsmeade, and he doesn't want to go out there because he thinks Snape's going to see him, and so Hermione immediately says that she'll go, and she leaves and comes back with the invisibility cloak. They then go to be with Hagrid. He's very traumatized, very upset, um... And Hermione miraculously discovers Scabbers hiding in Hagrid's hut in one of the pots. The execution team arrives up much faster than they expected, um, so the trio get out um, with Scabbers without being seen under the invisibility cloak. But as they're trying to run away and get Scabbers to stay still, they hear what they think is the execution happening. So, in my opinion, this is where the book takes its turn, kind of slides into the climax, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that in this book, but also the fact that I feel like that's a very typical Harry Potter book thing, is that there's this kind of slow and then relatively fast slide into the climax that's usually, like, four or so chapters from the end, sometimes more, depending on what the book is, but there is definitely something where you say, okay, the climax is starting and we're going to be at pretty much full speed until the end. I feel like this is actually the first book where it spans multiple chapters. Like in the first two books each, I think it was like two chapters Mm -hmm. where it was like climax and then falling action denouement. Whereas here it's like five chapters because there is so much happening with the time turner. So like there's a whole chapter where they just go back and do it all over again. Right, right. And there's so much exposition. There's a whole chapter, um, I think it's chapter 18, that's just exposition. It's just Lupin and Black telling Harry the story of what happened with Pettigrew. Right, right. Um, and so this this book, I think, is a much longer climax, but 
Um, but yeah, you're right. This is definitely the start of it because we're finally getting really, really important reveals. Mm-hmm. The prediction here is actually one of the most significant um, facts or, or revelatory moments in this entire book. Um, even though it doesn't seem like anything at the time. And Harry even wonders whether it was real or just something that she was doing to try to make her final exam seem more impressive. Right. Um, we will later find out that it is, in fact, a legitimate prediction and mm-hmm. um, has a lot of significance to what will happen at the end of this book. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to, it always makes me excited to start this part of the books. And I think it'll be interesting to compare how the climactic chapters um you know, come about and what they're like in the future books, because this is a start of them. So I want to talk about Hermione's schedule. I feel like we keep returning to this mm-hmm. one idea, but it's 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 good to talk about because it is like, it's an indication of something that's sort of just out of the character's grasp or mm-hmm. ability to understand. But the way that it's hidden is often just kind of in plain sight with these like minor distractions that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Like, they'll bring it up and then Hermione will say, oh, well, look over there. There's something else going on. Right. Um, it's kind of very obvious to the older readers, coming, especially coming back to this, knowing what it is. Um, and so I just think it's it's curious to look at it in this chapter. There's not even an attempt to disguise. No, there's no what's happening. distraction, really. They just don't pursue it, Ron and Harry. They almost just accept it. It's like they're... They're too over it to... Yeah, and, and they're just like, ugh, I guess Hermione's just not going to tell us. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. It, it's like... But but that's so funny coming from Harry and Ron because they are generally so invested in, like, uncovering secrets and doing, like, this detective stuff that they always do. But with this issue, they're kind of just willing to let it go and be like, okay, Hermione's got some weird stuff going on. But... And I think remember, because I think this is an important part of this, is that they're just recently reunited as friends. They've just yeah. recently made up, and I think that they're just not wanting to push her over the edge or, you know, seem mean or whatever. They're still kind of in that... Um, getting back to being good period i definitely feel like that's part of it especially because hermione is so stressed and worked up yeah um especially with hagrid's appeal that like they feel like they have to kind of take some of the emotional weight off of her right and part of that is kind of just like letting her have her secret with with however this is happening and not not trying to question it too much because they don't want to um, get her started up again you know yeah and they're probably thinking i mean i don't know what they're thinking because it's kind of crazy at this point that you know, to not say, like, Hermione, how are you not, how are you going to multiple finals? But, um, at the same time, but I think, um, the fact that Ron is really focused on the appeal, um, and Harry's really focused on other stuff, they are probably just assuming, like, she's wrong, but we don't want to deal with it. Like, she's too stressed to even handle it, but if we bring it up, she's gonna freak out. Yeah. And then speaking of, like, characters kind of shifting the way that they interact and the way that they um, react to uh, situations and concepts, there's a really interesting scene with Fudge, and we mentioned this in our synopsis, um, but not really about the what or the how of it, which is really cool. So Fudge basically says he's there to oversee an execution. Mm-hmm. And, and then Ron steps in. Ron Weasley, whose father works for Fudge. Right. And says, oh, but isn't there an appeal? And Fudge says, oh, well, yeah, there's there's an appeal. And Ron says, well, then you might not have to witness any execution. The hippogriff mm-hmm. might get off. And Hermione is like almost literally standing on Ron's feet being like, Ron, shut up. That's your, your dad's boss. Mm-hmm. Like, stop harassing him. And, and like Harry is the only person who's on speaking terms with Fudge, the right. minister they of magic. Each other. Yeah. 
um, the wizard president of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and Ron feels like he's so passionate about this issue about, about Buckbeak that he's willing to stand up to the minister of magic and say like, you might be wrong yeah. about, about what's happening here. Um, and, and I feel like it's really cool because you can see that Hermione is taking the long view and saying like, we're not going to win this one. We're not going to convince mm-hmm. Fudge to be on our side right now. You have to look at what's happening in the future. And this might have consequences on the way that he treats your father and your family and your, your other relatives. Um, you know, he's very influential, obviously. So, like, we don't want to maybe pick this fight with him. Which is kind of crazy, honestly, because I think the fact that Hermione... I mean, I get that Hermione's obviously very smart and she's good at thinking things through and ahead, but... And she wants to protect Ron, but I just think that... The fact that she is so narrowly focused, mostly on her finals, but also on the appeal and so stressed about that, I would think that she wouldn't maybe necessarily make that leap or, like, push Ron to stop saying that. Because I thought what Ron said is totally reasonable. Because he's not saying, you know, he's not saying you're wrong. Like, why are you saying that? He's just, like, reminding him. He's like, hey, there's an appeal. Like, this is gonna... Isn't there an appeal? Is that still happening? And you you might not have to see an execution. And I think that... That's totally reasonable. So it's interesting that Hermione sort of wakes up from her stress dream and to <laughs> defend Ron and try to or try to help Ron in this case. Yeah, no, I think it. I think it's interesting. The way that I perceive it is that they're both kind of reacting emotionally, but Ron's emotions have changed. Whereas normally he would be deferential to authority figures, especially like on a cultural level. The Minister of Magic is perceived as very influential and important. Yeah, yeah. He's not somebody that you just talk about trivial things with. Right. But um, that's changed. Ron is now so passionate that his emotional reaction is different now. Yeah. Whereas Hermione's emotional reaction, she still perceives authority as being very important to subject yourself to. Mm-hmm. So whereas she has changed in a number of ways, I do still think she feels that the Ministry of Magic and the minister as its representative is not something that she wants to go up against. So her emotional reaction to this situation is to protect and mm-hmm. and look inward and not try to like have these outbursts that she's been having with Malfoy and with Trelawney. You know, she doesn't perceive them as authority figures. So it's not the same kind of power right. differential. Yeah, she doesn't have respect for Trelawney. And so we'll get to that. But I think um, the Harry's role in this, which is which is not very much, except that he's the one on speaking terms. Like we said, he's the one kind of facilitating yeah. that interaction. <laughs> it's very funny because Fudge is going up to this group of three 13-year-olds and he only knows one of them. So he's yeah. just talking just to Harry. And then when Ron responds, he's like, oh, you're here? Yeah, that's <laughs> like you're a child. But I think that in and of itself is interesting because Harry has so many times already and will in the future have to like kind of be forced to interact with adults as if he's an adult or as if he's an important child which he is but i think he's been forced to kind of play this role of like yes hello i'm harry potter and just because i'm harry potter it's fine that i'm 13 and i can talk to the minister of magic and i can be very close to dumbledore and you know all these people that like you know normally the students could have relationships with but not in the same way that harry does because he is of this elevated status and importance. And it's interesting that this is kind of one of the first times we see that happening where there's that contrast between, you know, the other kids and Harry, where he is literally speaking with, you know, the most powerful wizard in Britain in terms of, like, political status. Right. And I think 
there's there's a double-edged sword there too because at one you know at the same time it gives harry influence Mm -hmm. so like adults talking to him as an equal gives him the influence to like change the way they think about things and to change their perceptions of of other problems but at the same time it definitely puts like a burden on to harry to be something that he's not yeah um and and to rise to the level of i guess intellect or ability of an adult and you know he's shown in the series that he can shoulder a fully grown wizard's burden multiple times i think dumbledore even says that in the first book he says like you've shouldered a grown man's burden and found yourself equal to it mm-hmm. i forget what book that's in maybe it's not the first book but it's in one of the early books and and in this book too you know he's taking on problems um that normal adult wizards would have trouble with and so there is that kind of like double-edged sword nature to this whole relationship that harry has with fudge and with dumbledore and with other wizards is that they think of him as this like savior figure and therefore worthy of like respect and attention but at the same time he is just a kid so Mm -hmm. how does he handle that how does he deal with that and here he just kind of is very awkward he's like i don't really know what to say to you right especially because they are he is fudge is coming there for something that they are very emotionally and like you know, yeah, physically and, involved in, in terms of Hagrid's appeal. And it's not as though Fudge is an antagonist, but he is in opposition to them in kind of a weird auxiliary way. Right. And so Harry doesn't want to say, like, hey, it's great to see you, friend, you know, like, yeah. we're such good buddies, because every time I see you, you're kind of there to do something that I don't like. Yeah, you're there to enforce something I don't want. And I, that'll be, I think, interesting in um, especially the next couple, the next two books, really, mm-hmm. To see the relationship with Fudge and just how that that character is revealed and how Harry's perspective changes on him. Of course. And it really changes the most dramatically in the chapter called The Parting of the Ways in which Dumbledore decides that he and Fudge are no longer working toward the same goal Mm -hmm. um, and and therefore must go their separate ways. And Harry, of course, who is Dumbledore's man, um, decides that he will side with Dumbledore and, and... seat himself in opposition to fudge and that has very immediate consequences on his life in the next book um but getting back to this this chapter which is so interesting in the way that different characters interact i love the way that trelawney sets her final exam Mm -hmm. it's so funny and it's like very true to her character because she has this mystique and mystery about her and it's so like dramatic you know she has such a right. flair for that kind of thing yeah it's very smart i think i think that's something that i have thought more about and concluded in this book um which is that trelawney is very smart and i do genuinely believe that a lot of her things that she does are calculated i don't think that you know i think she is a kind of a, a ditz and kind of you know believes in these things that aren't really real but i think she knows a lot of that and I think that she is, in some ways, using that as a cover for what we first see in this chapter, which is, like, her true nature as a seer, which probably is pretty terrifying to her, and also, you know, just a very powerful power that she has. The the most interesting thing about that, to me, is that she doesn't seem aware that she is a true seer. And we've Mm -hmm. talked about this before, that, like, Trelawney's predictions do all come true, but she even believes herself to be a fraud. Right. So I think that's where a lot of this comes from, this, like, front of being 
ditzy and overly dramatic and, you know, having all this flair that goes along with her character. Um, it's because she needs, to, she feels like she needs to dress up her predictions mm-hmm. um, in all these layers of mystique to try to create an aura of believability because she doesn't even have faith in her own ability to see. Right. So the fact that Dumbledore gave her this job, she doesn't know or understand why that is. Mm-hmm. She believes herself to be fake. So she's like, okay, well, I have to put on a good show. Yeah. And at least like pretend to be making good predictions. Um, even though I think deep down she incorrectly thinks that she's not a seer. Yeah, it's complicated because I, I think you are right. And and then I think there's another way in which like part of her that is powerful in that way knows that there's something that she is kind of protecting or that she is vulnerable and doesn't have full control over her own abilities. And I think that's really scene in this where she's obviously created this final exam where she's adding a lot of mystery and like we're all gonna go one by one and don't tell anybody what you see and don't tell anyone what i say and i think that's to kind of you know hype up the anxiety and the mystique but then at the end of this whole experience um and with harry there present obviously she has this premonition where her voice changes her eyes roll back and she's speaking in a very different way and she makes this very ominous and very clear prediction that's not in the way she speaks at all. Yeah. And then she seems to snap out of it like a seizure almost and doesn't know what happened. And Harry's like, what What are you talking about? What just happened? And, you know, and then he, she tells him to leave. So it's just a very, um, it's a very cool scene. And I love that he at one point believes that maybe she did that on purpose mm-hmm. to try to impress him or something, you know, because it, it does seem like the kind of thing that a really dramatic person might do intentionally. But it's just so bizarre that even Harry is confused about, like, what is happening. And I do want to talk about the actual prediction yeah. itself. Um, so the prediction goes, it will happen tonight. The Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these twelve years. Tonight before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever he was. Tonight before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. And I think it's really significant that she repeats the the not exactly the beginning but part of the beginning mm-hmm. of the the important part of the beginning of the prophecy tonight before midnight the servant will set out to rejoin his master that's kind of like the thing that's going to happen right right and if we understand that this is how trelawney makes predictions then that has an extra significance because the other prediction that she made was probably made in that same way where she says the whole prophecy and then she goes back and repeats the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you recall, the reason why this makes sense is that Snape was listening to the prophecy and he overheard part of it, but he only overheard the beginning. Mm-hmm. He didn't overhear the end that the this person would have power the Dark Lord knows not and that he would mark him as an equal and, and that he would have the power to defeat the Dark Lord. He only heard that the one with the power to defeat the Dark Lord approaches, he will be born sometime at the end of July mm-hmm. um, to, to parents who have thrice defied him. That's all Snape heard. But it wouldn't make sense for him to only have heard that part if he then barged in 
and mm. interrupted them. That only makes sense if we think that it was like this, that that was the part that she repeated at, the, at end, the end. And that he didn't hear the first time that it went through. Right. Because he, it was like he heard her finish, basically, and then came in. Yeah. So paradoxically, he heard the end of what she said, but only the beginning of the prophecy. Very cool. Okay, so we're kind of... We're, we're going a little bit off track, but that's a really Very cool track, way of thinking But I just thought that was a really about... cool connection. And, and when I was rereading this, the fact that it was repeated really yeah. stuck out to me as being important. Oh, absolutely. I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. And um, when we're thinking about the meaning of this, so what we know is that this means that, you know, a pedigree who is Voldemort's most loyal servant will, you know, break free of his bonds, which are his, you know, animagus. Um, yeah, being a rat. Being a rat. Um, and we'll go to rejoin Voldemort. Um, and we'll see that he does that in the next, in the following book. So um, at this point, what we might think is that it's black, or that's what Harry might think if he's starting to think about it at this point. Yeah. Um, but certainly what the reader would, would think on first glance. But it's interesting because... We what we know is that Black has already already broken out of prison, right? Months which ago, is, which is where it starts to be confusing. I so think. he's not breaking his bonds right now. Yeah, his servant has been chained these twelve years, right? That makes you think of Azkaban. Mm-hmm. But then tonight before midnight, the servant will break free. Break free from what? Well, we know that Sirius has broken out of Azkaban already. Maybe it's break free from something else. Right. Maybe you could you could say that it's break free of his desire to get revenge or maybe or... he'll break free from like hiding and he'll come out into the open to like sure do stuff so i think it's 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 a hard you know it still fits very much for black and in, in what we know at this time yeah. but it's it's a g- really good you know misdirect in general and especially for what happens in the next uh chapter. chapters yeah and and it's important i think in fantasy books when there is a prophecy it can't just be straightforward Oh, yeah. That's, like, way too boring. So there has to be some kind of twist or, like, way for it to be misinterpreted that makes it interesting. Right. Um, so that's where this becomes cool is where we think that it's black. It's actually not black at all. Um, if it were just as simple as, okay, Sirius Black is going to go rejoin the Dark Lord. Eh, that's mm-hmm. really boring. And we knew that that would probably happen anyway. So what's the point of having a prediction about it? Right. Right, and it's it's really interesting to think about, like, again, Trelawney's powers as a seer. You know, you could think, well, oh, this is convenient timing. She's having this prediction right now. But I think it's because she's in this scenario where she's alone with Harry, and the part of her that is, you know, the true seer knows that and also knows Harry is going to be interacting with these players yeah. tonight, you know. and The, the play is tonight. Yeah, and, and so she's delivering happening. this message to him for this reason um exactly and it's like it's happening tonight right that's how it starts right so that's like really significant and i think the fact is also that because there is this like time loop involved here Mm -hmm. there's a lot of possibilities of what could happen right right um, theoretically and and so the fact that she nails this prediction or you know whatever power takes over her nails this prediction when harry like looks back on the events of tonight he's gonna be like oh yeah trelawney was right because like we thought we had Pettigrew, we had him in shackles Mm -hmm. you know we were gonna take him to to fudge and the dementors and turn him over and explain everything 
But Trelawney predicted that he would break free. Right. And that there was nothing we could do about that. So really, it's kind of like setting it up for the reader. We kind of already know what's going to happen now. Yes. In the rest of the book. But, even though we don't know. But not the how. All the part of it. Right. And that's the fun part. So even if even if we were a genius and we read this and we knew exactly what this would mean, um, we still don't know the how. And the how is the fun part anyway. We do. And I think it's also cool to think about, like you said, with the time turner element, you know, maybe after the first time you read through the scenes with Pettigrew and what happens, you might think... Um, there's a chance. There's a chance. We can still save him. We can this. still save him. But also you might think, well, maybe that's not what she means because it was already not what we thought. So maybe it's something else that's going to happen sure. in the next, you know, when we redo the timeline. Maybe, you know, because Sirius does escape and there's a lot of... There's just like a lot of unknowns that right. I think this could mean. Or what if it's Snape? What if, you know... Right. What if Snape's been chained up at Hogwarts and now he's going to, you know, I mean, that's getting kind of outlandish, but you're right. There's lots of options. There's lots of potential for for different scenarios to occur. But then when we do finish the timeline and, okay, we couldn't actually get Pettigrew back. We couldn't save Sirius from having to live on the run and not have his name cleared. Um, Then we come back to this and we're like, yeah, Trelawney was right. Yeah. So... Speaking of the time turner, I wanted to, I definitely want to talk about the feeling at the end of this chapter and kind of the hopelessness that comes in. But first, I think it'd be helpful to talk about, you know, so the ending scene from the perspective of um, the trio at this point, what we think happens is that, you know, they go to Hagrid's, the executioner comes, and we hear a chop, and it sounds like they've executed Buckbeak. Um, but because we've now overlapped with time turner time, like starting now, basically, what uh-huh. what is actually happening in in real time in this scene? Oh, okay. So, I mean, we'll get to this when we get to the Hermione's yeah. secret chapter too. But just um, to kind of like whet your appetite for that. Um, so, time turner Harry and Hermione are hiding behind the pumpkin patch in Hagrid's hut. In the forest, and um, when the trio in the original timeline leaves the hut, um, and Harry and Hermione like sneak around and get in a hiding position where they can see inside the hut and they can see um, the back porch because that's where the that's where Dumbledore and Fudge and McNair um, and Hagrid will come out to look mm-hmm. at Buckbeak. So then that happens. They come into the hut. They look at Buckbeak. They go back into the hut. Now Harry and Hermione have like a minute of time mm-hmm. while they're doing the paperwork to get Buckbeak out of the pumpkin patch into the forest and hidden mm-hmm. before they come back out to actually do the execution. So they do that. Harry manages to like bow and get Buckbeak to trust him. Then they, they get him loose and they run into the forest with him on a lead. Um, and then they stay hidden while Dumbledore and company come out and say, Oh, Buckbeak's gone. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a, what an amazing coincidence that he just broke free all by himself just right then. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's and then McNair in his anger swings his axe into the fence mm-hmm. of the pumpkin patch. So, so that's the sound that the trio hears in this in this time. Exactly, and they think that it was the execution happening. In fact, it was just a mean man swinging his axe into some wood. <laughs> so so now we know what really happens. But when we're in this moment with the trio, um, before we know about the time turner, I feel like there's such a sense of hopelessness and despair at the end of this. You know, Hermione especially is so distressed and there's this just panic, anxiety. Scabbers won't stay still. They don't know what's happening. 
they're trying to leave and then just they realize like there was clearly never a chance um and it's all just worse than they could ever expect it seems like there is no point to any of this yeah i again i think we've talked about it before but this kind of like pervasive hopelessness and helplessness when you're dealing with the bureaucracy of the ministry of magic is definitely a theme throughout the books yeah and it's present here it's definitely present in chamber of secrets when hagrid gets taken away Mm -hmm. and they're like we know it wasn't you like clearly it's Mm -hmm. not you but we have to be seen doing something right so sorry bub you know you're coming with us yeah and in this book it's it's you know you know uh who cares whether the hippogriff did it or not we have you know, to he, whether make it was an his example. fault yeah. whether it was his fault or not it doesn't matter he attacked a student the student's dad's pressing charges we're going to execute the animal mm-hmm. sorry you know and it's like there's there's this you know kind of ineffable bureaucracy to the ministry and it's so corrupt at every level um and i think even though hermione does still like have a lot of respect for authority at this time you can definitely see that she's like losing faith in them mm-hmm. as the series goes on and eventually will have no faith but um, here it just kind of depresses all of them that that it's this impenetrable wall of bureaucracy. Right. They can't they can't break through. There's and no human keeps... element there. There's no sympathy yeah. for Hagrid. There's no like sympathy for the plight of Buckbeak, who's an innocent and in all of this. Right. Um, all there is is like the rules and procedures. And even that, like there's so much corruption that who knows what those are. Mm-hmm. Even It's just we're going to do whatever Lucius Malfoy tells us to do. Yeah. I mean, this is well, at first I was going to say, um that I think, you know, Hermione just keeps saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And that's, that's sort of where we're seeing, like, she still has some faith that they would do the right thing, like, as a ministry. Or right. that, you know, Fudge or Dumbledore would somehow stop it and make it happen. Um, or, you know, make it not happen. Um, yeah. So that's definitely part of it. Um, and I do think of this execution or, you know, almost execution as kind of like a um comparison to like pit bulls or other dogs or like strays or things like that where you know the animal did attack but was like either trained or provoked to do so and then they are they're killed because it's they're blamed instead of like the humans are blamed which is really what's happening here which is like Malfoy was told exactly what not to do and he did it right and then he's attacked yeah, and I think the the sinister thing in all of this is that Malfoy is acting maliciously. Right. You know, he's not like a legitimate, well, it's hard, you know, it's weird to say legitimate victim. He was attacked by a hippogriff, but it was his fault. And he's pressing charges because he wants to hurt Hagrid, not because he has a legitimate grievance. Right, right. Um. So it's that aspect of it, too. I don't want to end on that note, though, so... Can we go back a little bit and talk about how awesome it is that Hermione just, like, without a second thought, just, like, went to go get the invisibility cloak? Oh, yeah. That's another, like, change for her. You know, her character is developing so much, this book. Um, That's, like, such a cool moment where Harry and Ron are legitimately confused when Hermione is, like, asking about, like, how do you open the witch's hump? Yeah, yeah. And get inside. And Harry's like, uh, you just tap it and say descendium. Why? And Hermione's like, out of here. Gotta go. Gotta go get it, because she's, like, not afraid. No, it's really cool. I think, um, 
I think this is so obviously like the school and the professors and everyone knows like they're a trio, but I think it's still sort of assumed like Harry and Ron are the troublemakers. You know, they're the ones that like yeah sold the car and, and everything. Hermione's like a model student, and she yeah she's a model student and she is friends with them and that's kind of like she is still um, relatively innocent in a lot of people's eyes, but I think that um, she's using that to her advantage here by. By saying, you know, I'm going to go because if Snape, even if Snape sees me, even though he doesn't like me, you know, he doesn't have any, like, really anything against me. Like, I can just say I'm going to the library because I always go to the library and I'll just be, like, make some excuse. Whereas if Harry's hanging around there or Ron, you know, it's going to be an immediate, like, you are up to something bad. Right. Harry is more worried that Snape has seen him around there before. And that seeing him there again would be confirmation that he was up to something no no good, that there was some kind of secret passage there, which there is, and that Hermione going is not really a, a risk. Which right. is right. But like there is kind of a risk. There you know? is. But she basically is like, I'm not worried about it. I'll be fine. And this is a big development for her. Over the course of this book, she's she's gone from being unwilling to break rules to now being very willing to break rules. Very willing to, because she's she knows what matters like she really has a good sense of what matters and she's like this is for hagrid we have to be there support our friend we have to do this yeah and and breaking rules is okay as long as you're doing something that's justifiable that that's right and that is a big difference right thank you all for listening to harry podcast and professor trelawney's prediction we hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter if you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today especially professor trelawney's prediction please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we transform into Chapter 17, Cat, Rat, and Dog. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox. Knox.